Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. I want to talk briefly just about loneliness. I wonder if you've noticed this week or, well, really most weeks, an article or something about loneliness in the newspapers or um, online news web, like websites that we might read. I wonder if you've experienced loneliness yourself. It's something which is a real problem in our society. People have been doing plenty of research on it as well. I read recently that it's a problem whether you live in a city or in the countryside, whether you live around, around a lot of people or if there's miles and miles to the next people. It's a problem for old folks as well as younger folks. Apparently, uh, nearly half of British people who are over 65 consider the television or a pet their main source of company. But it's not just the older folks who are um, shut at home or uh, who've lost loved ones who feel particularly lonely. Statistically speaking, according to a BBC study last year, can you guess which is the age bracket um, who feel most lonely? 18 to 25, yeah, 16 to 24, just about. So the youngest of age brackets, young adults, are the age group that feel most lonely of all. Loneliness is something that is a, a real scourge on our society, isn't it? Something that our culture seems to struggle with, even though we have plenty of technology that connects us to other people, even though we have plenty of of wealth, at least most of us, to be able to go and be, be a part of clubs, to have free time to go to the leisure center, to meet people here or there or everywhere. Loneliness seems to be a real problem. I think we probably feel it as well as, as Christians. Um, even if we're in a room like this, we feel that longing for company, for closeness, for intimacy. We long to be known, don't we? That's why I think we can be so lonely, even though we're connected to other people that we feel like we have lots of friends on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, and we're very, very connected. We might even be chatting to people across the other side of the world, but with it, and despite all of that connection, all of that community, we still feel incredibly lonely. That you can feel, even with people in the room, like you're completely alone. A kind of absent presence, isn't it? A kind of disconnectedness. We've all seen that with Parents with their phones out, not talking to children at the dinner table. Or children with their phones out, not talking to parents at the dinner table. Or whatever. We seem to be as connected as can be in our world, and yet as lonely, perhaps lonelier than ever. Longing for a sense of connection. Longing for somebody to hear us, to listen. Longing for somebody to know us. If you were here a few weeks ago, I used this quote that to be known but not loved is terrifying, isn't it? For someone to know your deepest secrets but not love you, it's a terrifying thing. To be loved but not known is superficial. And that's social media. That's our culture all over it, isn't it? That we love one another or we, we think we do, but we don't really know each other. We like each other's posts. We uh, chat nicely and happily and friendly and warmly to each other, but we don't really know each other. And so we feel like there's a lot of love and warmth and politeness in our society. And yet, really, it doesn't go particularly deep. It's a superficial thing. So to be loved but not known is superficial, isn't it? We want more. We want to be known and loved. We want people to be present with us, 
when we have dinner, to have deep conversation about real things, to have good, deep laughs and really know each other. Don't we? Do you long for that? We long for it on horizontal level, don't we, with other people. I wonder if you long for it on a vertical level with God as well, because this loneliness that we feel, even in the presence of other people, isn't just limited to people, isn't it? It's not a spiritual loneliness that we feel when it comes to God as well, that we know that he's present everywhere. We'll talk about this in a second, but also that we don't really feel his presence sometimes, even as Christians, perhaps even especially as Christians. We know he's there. We love him. We know that he's real, and yet we want a deeper knowledge of his presence. You know, it's not just Christians, though. There's an atheist writer and author called Julian Barnes. He's British as well, um, an atheist man. But he says, when people ask him, do you believe in God? Well, he says, no, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. It's one of his famous lines. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Even people who don't believe have a kind of a sense of an emptiness, of something that should be there, of knowing that there's more to life, but it, but I'm just not really sure what it is sense of emptiness. I wonder if you feel that if you've come along this morning and you're not a Christian. I wonder if you feel that same kind of, well, we would say here ice, don't we? a kind of longing, almost a homesickness that we can't quite put into words. A longing for the presence of somebody who would see us and know us deep down, but love us all the same and be with us always to the very end of days. Wouldn't that be amazing to have somebody present like that? Well, that's our subject for today, that God is present. So let's read. Let's go to Psalm 27 and see. There's plenty in Scripture. I've been struggling really this week with how much there is. If you looked at my Bible closely, you see I have all sorts of little bookmarks and things, and I keep trying to add and and take them away, but almost all of Scripture is about God's presence with people. But let's read Psalm 27 right in the middle of Scripture, and we'll see what David does and how, what kind of effect does God's living presence have for David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege against me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Where does that confidence come from? It comes from this. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Well, I wonder if you have ever said with David, one thing that I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I would live, that I would dwell, that I would be in his house, in his presence, living with him. I wonder if you've said that, and that's the desire of your heart, that God would be present with you, but then not really felt it at all. Well, God should be and is present with us. It's one of those strange questions, isn't it? When we say, well, we know where God is. He's everywhere. But where is God when things go wrong? Where's God in suffering? I know where God is. He's everywhere. But where is God when it's thing, it seems to be completely silent? I know where God is. He's everywhere. But where is God when I sin? And I turn away from him. Will he turn away from me? Where is God? That's a big question, isn't it? It's the biggest question of all. And you can answer it by, well, reading Psalm 27, or really just looking at the first and the last couple of pages of Scripture. We're told we shouldn't judge books by their covers, but if you just turn inside the cover and read the first couple of pages and the last couple of pages, you can usually judge a book, can't you? So if you were to turn inside the Bible and read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and then flick to the end and read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters, you'll see that they're chapters full of God's presence in the beginning. God is there, and he breathes the world out. He doesn't make it by some, I don't know, cold, mechanical, he talks it out. He sings it almost into being. There's this wonderful poem of the world being made by God's, God's speech, and then he takes ground and forms it with his own hands, as it were. He crafts a person, and then from that person, he crafts another person. And then he takes these two people, Adam and Eve, and he puts them in a garden that he's planted, and he says, come and eat, come and feast. Come and rejoice. Enjoy everything that I give to you. And he comes down and does it with them. In Genesis 3, you hear about God stepping down and walking in the cool of the day, in the evening, with Adam and Eve, except that they're not there. They're hiding from him. But we'll get to that in a minute. So in the beginning, God is there, present with his people, face to face, walking with them, enjoying, eating, speaking with them. And then right at the end of Scripture, you see the same thing, this beautiful garden, but the garden's much, much bigger now. It covers the whole of the world. And it's not just a place for people to live and for God to come and visit, but it's a place where God lives. And it says this, they will see his face. He'll wipe tears from every eye. So at the beginning of scripture, there's God walking with his people, crafting and intimately present. At the end of scripture, there's God with his people in a garden world, enjoying each other's presence, having every wound bound up, having every sadness come unthrough, every tear being wiped. And so what on earth is going on in the middle? If God was there at the beginning, if, if he'll be with us at the end, how can David say, one thing I will ask of the Lord, that I would dwell in his house, as if he isn't dwelling there at the moment? How can we, and Christians like us who say that we know God, how can we have those longings? that here I for more of God. What on earth has happened in the middle? How can God be everywhere, but sometimes we feel he's not here? It's one of life's biggest questions, isn't it? Where is God in suffering? Where is God in silence when I pray and it feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? Where is God when I sin? 
You see that word sin, that's the key. That's the answer to what's going on in the middle, to how God seems to be present but also absent, how he's everywhere, upholding the world, transcendent over everything, and yet seems to be not here right now. At least I can't feel him. How does that work? Well, I think it works a bit like this. We've talked a little bit about it already, but I wonder if you remember being back in school. Maybe some of you are still in school at the moment. And you come into school one day and something has been said. I don't know how it happened, when it happened. Perhaps you don't even know how it happened, but something has been said. And so as you sit there next to your best friends who the day before, everything was wonderful. You enjoyed time together, laughing, joking. It was brilliant. But today it's different. Today you're sitting in a lesson and your friend is right there next to you. Really, they could be a thousand miles away, the way that they're speaking or not speaking to you. There could be an enormous brick wall in between you. And so then you're off to lunch to see your other mates, and you sit down, same table, same place, same lunch, same sandwich box, open it up, and your friends are all there. But really, they could be a thousand miles away, the way that they're not speaking to you, not looking at you, not talking to you. It's possible, isn't it, to be next to people, to be close to people, but to be a thousand miles away, in, absorbed in your phone. To even sleep in the same bed, but be opposite sides, back to back, not talking, not seeing, not close. It's possible, isn't it, to be close to people physically, geographically, but a thousand miles away in heart. I think that gives us just a little taster of what is going on with us and God. That God is present, isn't it? We say that he's transcendent. Bible puts it even better than that. Let me read you um, this. That some people think in God's transcendence, he's so high and so far above, so far away from us, so high and lifted up that we can't get close to him. And, and that's the reason that we feel he's far away. Because he literally is. He's transcendent. He's he doesn't not that interested in the world. He might help you out if you keep the rules, if you do some good things, then maybe he'll let you into heaven in the future. But he sure surely won't be there. I mean, God is too transcendent, too high and lifted up. Well, that's what some people think, but that's not what the Bible teaches about God's transcendence. It's more like this. One author says that God is down underneath the mess, holding us all together. His transcendence is that not that he's far and, and high and, and we can't know him, but that he's in and under everything. He's down underneath the mess, holding us all together, moving us steadily towards Jesus. Underneath are the everlasting arms, says Deuteronomy 33. The Bible says that at this very moment, the Lord Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. John Calvin wrote, to uphold is used in the sense of to care for and to keep all creation in its proper state. He sees that everything will quickly disintegrate if it's not upheld by his goodness. That's what God's transcendence is all about, about keeping it, holding it together. Not about being high and far and lifted up. It's not a geographical thing. That's not the problem. That's not why there seems to be or feels to be distance between us. Then what is it? Well, we get the story of the problem at the beginning of it in Genesis chapter 3, really close to the beginning, where humankind who have been put in this garden to love God, to know him, to walk closely with him, decide that they're not really that interested in him. We decided, our parents did, and we've been doing the same thing ever since, that we are not really very interested in God. So we've turned away from him. 
And the consequences of that, and you see it in Genesis 3, are that Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, sent out into wilderness. And if they turned around and looked back to the garden, what would they see? A big flaming sword. You can go and read it this afternoon. A big flaming sword flashing back and forth, keeping them from God's presence, keeping them from the garden, keeping them from walking closely with him. But God is still everywhere. He's still upholding and underneath everything, underneath all the mess. And yet they're distant from him. So how does that work? It's a strange thing, isn't it? You could maybe think about it um, like this. Think about it in two words, that God has made himself present with us, or he's shown us his face. That's what David said in the psalm, isn't it? He seeks, he longs to gaze on his face, to be in his presence. So how can we, even though God is underneath and all around us, upholding the world, how can we come into his presence all the more? Well, God's presence is it kind of works like this. We can experience it, and he expresses it. God's face, or his presence, is a bit of a metaphor like that. We know that he's everywhere, and yet there's some way in which we're distant from him, because we've turned away from him. So how can we come back into his presence? Well, what does it mean? If, we, if we're still in his presence anyway, it means to experience him more, doesn't it? To know his closeness, to recognize that he exists, to taste him, to feel and know him, to realize the reality of God more authentically, more intimately, more effectively. I mean, producing effects and changing us, to know it more certainly, or maybe more terrifyingly, when we realize what we've done, that we've turned away from this God that he's put us away from his presence into the wilderness. When we feel that longing to come back, but also fear at coming back to this God, that's us experiencing God's presence, isn't it? He's still all around. He never went anywhere. Like those friends at the dinner table at school, they never went anywhere, but seems a thousand miles away spiritually. So what does it mean to come into his presence? It means to know that he's there, to experience him. James 4, verse 8, puts it like this. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. It's possible, even though he's underneath us, all around us, to know his experience, to know his presence more closely, isn't it? To know and have an experience, a fuller, more intense experience of the reality of God. So that's one side of the coin of, the, of God's presence. The other side is this, God's expression. So our experience and God's expression. You could read it, Psalm 114, verse 7. Let me flick that up and um, read it to you. Psalm 114 and verse 7. And let's see what, God, uh, what happens when God appears. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. See, the earth trembles when God works, doesn't it? We experience and we can know his presence, but also God can come and work in special ways and do special things. That psalm remembers back to the time when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, thirsty, and God brought living water out from a rock. That the earth trembled and shook, that God comes in and works and does things. I wonder if you've experienced that in your life, that you have experienced and known the reality of God as he's done something. As something happened to you, I don't know what it was. I imagine there would be 100 plus different experiences of that in, in the room this morning. 
But you see, what does it mean to be in God's presence, to know his closeness? It means to know his reality more in our experience and to see him working for us on our behalf. You could put it, if those are two E's, experience and expression, maybe it could be relationship and redemption. That's what we see in Psalm 27, isn't it? That's what David really wants. He wants God to rescue him, and he's confident that he will, that, that God will come. He says at the end, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart. I'm confident I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. It's God's presence that will come and sort everything out, not just make him feel better, not just give him a nice experience and, and, and feel kind of warm in the cold, but that God will come and rescue him, will vindicate him when people accuse him, will lift him up when people crush him down, will rescue him when he's at risk. You see, so it's, it's a relationship. It's experience and knowing God's presence. But it's also knowing his power, knowing his redemption and his work in our lives. So here we are in the middle. God was with us, walking with us at the beginning. He will be with us and we'll walk with him at the end. But here we are in the middle, sort of close and knowing his presence. Many people deny it, but still miss it. And then here we are as Christians, longing for more experience, longing for a deeper relationship, longing for more expression of his presence, that he'd work in our lives and transform us, that he'd work in our community and change us. Longing for his redemption, to, the Old Testament says, to bear his right arm, to see him work among us. So how do we know God's, more of God's presence? There's the question isn't it? How can we know more of this expression? How can we know more of his power? Well, if some people think that God is transcendent and high and lifted up and isn't particularly interested in us, just wants us to kind of do what we should do morally and then get into heaven, other people kind of think of it the opposite way around. That God is in everything and the spark of the divine actually is in all of us. That everything is God. And so what you have to do to get close to the divine is to, I don't know, do some meditation, do some yoga, do some mindfulness. Do, do something in order to connect with that divine spark within you, in order to, to connect with the divine in the world. You see, that's kind of the opposite, isn't it? That God is not now far and too far, high and lifted up, not interested in us kind of God, but he is everything, and you're God, and I'm God, and we're all God. And in order to experience that, we need to do some kind of spiritual thing. Go on a pilgrimage, do some exercises, do... Uh, some mantras or some praying or some religion. or I wonder if that maybe cuts a little bit close to the bone of how, you, how we view Christianity. If I were to just be a little bit better, God would be close to me. If I were to just get my act together and be a nicer person and show more love to others and you know, keep the Ten Commandments, then God would be close to me. If I were to just pray a bit more, then God would be close to me. As if these are all kind of ways that we get, get hold of the divine something, substance, and kind of bring it closer to us. Do you see that? We kind of get a little bit too mystical and think that it's all about me unlocking the keys of, um, of, of experience or, or something like that. Well, if it's not that, if God isn't far away, if he's dead close and wants to know us, and, but if God is not just in everything so that it's all kind of a big divine mush and we have to forget ourselves and just blend into it, if it's not that, then, then how, is, how is it that we come to know God? How is it that we know more of his closeness? That we know the reality of his being underneath us, all around us, much more deeply in our hearts. How is it? It's not by anything that we do. 
Let me read you some famous words from John's Gospel. The Word, this thing that was in the beginning, this person that made you and I, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wrote that. John saw God. We've just been through the book of Mark, and, and we've seen this, I hope, time after time, that this man, Jesus, who walked the earth, was not just a special teacher who could keep everybody awake in his sermons, was not just a, a special healer who could you know, fix illnesses just like that, not just a, a special leader who could impress everybody and speak a word and put down authorities and, and get everybody to follow him. He was not just that, he was God himself. That's what John says here. We've seen his glory. I've dwelled in his presence. You know that word he says? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's the same word as tabernacle. Did, that, did, you, did you hear that come up in the reading a couple of times? To dwell in his house, to seek the beauty of his temple. He'll keep me safe in his dwelling. He'll hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. If you've not been in church much, that would be a very strange word to you. The tabernacle was a tent. Back in the days of Israel, just after they'd escaped from Egypt, God came and dwelled and lived with his people but in a special tent, in a kind of mobile temple. Um, with the Ark of the Covenant, you might have seen in Indiana Jones, that kind of a thing, inside the tent, which was inside another tent, which was inside a bit of a wall, and there were priests and animals and all sorts of different things happened there. That's how God lived among his people. That's where kind of his name was present. And what does John say here? That the word became flesh, that that God who lived with them in a tent, who kind of went and traveled with them and led them and guide them, guided them and looked after them, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. His tent wasn't just a tent of canvas or whatever they made it from, but it was a tent of flesh and blood, of DNA, of protein, bones and bodily fluids and hair and nails and eyes you could look into, of hands you could touch that touched and healed people, of, of words and a voice box that spoke and you could recognize his voice. If you know him, by the way, you'll recognize it one day. But one day, God came to us, you see? It's not that he's so far and high and lifted up and not interested and just got to get on with life and hope for the best in the end. It's not that we're all gods and we've got to do some strange spiritual technique to get hold of some spiritual something. It's that God is a person who you can know. He's not you. He's not me. He's not creation. He made the world and now has stepped into it. You see, God has come close. There was a day when you could have gone up to him and touched him and seen him. There was a day that you could have turned your back on him and walked away like Judas did. You know that day is also today for us. We don't see him, but he's still alive. We celebrated this two or three weeks ago. He's alive and with us today. So you can come and know him. You can come and be close to him, or you can turn your back and walk away from him. How do we do that? Well, you can do it by coming to church. Because who is the church? I don't mean the building or anything like that, but the people, those who know God. Who are we? What are we? Well, Paul says in Ephesians, you can flick it up later in, um, I think it's in Ephesians 2, he says that we are being built together, God's people, into a temple, a dwelling place for God. That where God lives is among his people. That he's come close in Jesus, but more than that, he now lives among us. And even more than that, let me read you something incredible. Just a few more chapters on in John chapter 14. 
Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Paul says in another place that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, our bodies. Not just us as the church when we gather together, but us personally. That It's not only true, this is amazing, isn't it? That God has come from heaven to us in a body, that, that he has spoken to us by his Son. But not only that, has he come into the world, but he's come into us. That he now lives and dwells within us. So how do we know God's presence? How can we know more of it? Well, the first is to realize that he lives within you. Not in some kind of Eastern divine spark kind of way, but that this God who is outside of creation, who upholds all of it, now comes and dwells and lives within us. So how do we come to know more of that? The first thing to do is to remind ourselves of those truths. To remind ourselves that that even though we're outside the garden, God has come close to us. Even though we're outside of Eden, walking in the wilderness still, still struggling with this longing and this here I to know more of his presence, God has come close to us in Jesus. And not just 2,000 years ago, but today, by his spirit, he comes into our hearts, speaks to us, helps us know Jesus' closeness, helps us know his reality. Jesus said he's a comforter. He's the one who walks with us as we're Weeping tears, we don't just have to look forward to the final day when he'll wipe them away, but we can know his comfort today, right now, his closeness with us, walking with us, his love underneath me, all around me. You can know his presence today, not even just walking alongside you, like Jesus was with the disciples, but living within you. That's wonderful, isn't it? It's really, really good news, but how can that happen? Well, think back to that picture of the garden again. There are Adam and Eve, enjoying God, but they turn away from him and they're kicked out. A flaming sword is across the door. You can't get back into God's presence. You can't get back into God's presence just by trying your hardest, just by doing some religious stuff, just by being moral, being nice, just by really, really wanting to. There's a flaming sword across the door. If you try and get close to him, you will die. We can't be close to God unless somebody goes through for us unless somebody takes that sword on their own neck and opens a way for us to come close. You see, that's what I've been talking about. That's what Jesus has done. That God himself has stepped into the world, not just to be nice and be close, but has stepped into the world to walk under that sword, to die for us, to take that punishment, to spill his own blood, to take away that flaming sword so that the doors would now be open. Maybe you were here on Good Friday and we read the story of the temple curtain being torn in two. That was this enormous curtain in the tabernacle and then later in the temple that was really, really thick, a heavy piece of cloth. And at the moment Jesus died, Mark recorded that that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Like a flaming sword had taken it all the way down the middle and the barrier was gone. And as Jesus died, a way was open for us to be close to God. Not just to have him in the middle of the camp, in a tent, kind of far away behind some priestly stuff. No, but to be close to us, that we could walk into his presence, that we would be his children, and that he would walk into our world, into our presence, 
and live within us. Can I read you some more words from John? Jesus, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. I wonder if you recognize him today. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the rights to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. Do you see the privilege that we have? We're no longer stuck outside the garden in the wilderness. Spiritually speaking, God has made a way for us to come back in to be his children, to come through that door, through that curtain, no more sword any longer, but to come into his presence. And yet we don't really feel it, do we? We're still back to that. Wonderful truths. John, it all sounds really good. Maybe a little bit beyond, but I'm going to take it home and think about it. But, but I still feel so distant from the Lord sometimes. So, so what? God is present, but when is he present? Three things, practically, for us to take home with us. Emma, if we could go on to that. Three things. Where is God when it's silent? When my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Where is God when, when I sin? And I choose to step out of that garden, out of his presence, and go into my wilderness again. Am I lost then? Is it over? If I sin again? And what about suffering? There's the big question, as Sammy mentioned. Where is God when the world is just so sad? Well, in silence. I'll read you a couple of other portions from Psalm. Psalm 6. O Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I'm faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Have you ever said that kind of thing? When God just seems silent and far away, and you know in kind of theological terms that he's present and he's everywhere, and you know that he's everywhere, but he just doesn't seem to be here. And you've said, how long, O Lord? Perhaps you've said with David, it really is the biggest desire of my heart to dwell in his temple, to be near his face, to see him. But I just can't see him. Have you ever experienced that? And just said, how long, O Lord? Well, what do you do? What do you do in that kind of circumstance? Well, you do what the psalmists do. Go back and read the rest of Psalm 13 or Psalm number 6 or Psalm 40 and you'll see. They wait and wait. I waited patiently for the Lord, Psalm 40 verse 1. And he turned to me and heard my cry. That might be hours in the making. It might be days. It might be months or even years. Some of you know what that's like. I waited patient for, patiently for the Lord, and we feel we're still waiting. I prayed for that, but it still hasn't come. I asked him to help me, but I still don't feel like I've received help. I prayed for comfort, but I'm still really struggling. Oh Lord, how long? How long, oh Lord? We need to remember that we still live in the middle, don't we? We haven't reached those final chapters yet. So what do we do? Well, can I encourage you? Can I encourage us as a church to help one another as we're crying out, how long, O Lord, as we see others crying out, how long, O Lord, to come and, and encourage and say there will be a day when you'll be able to say, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned and heard my cry. He hears us anyway. 
He's not deaf. He's not far away. He's not doing something else. He hears us, but sometimes we don't feel that. Sometimes we don't know that. Keep waiting. You can trust him. He died for you. He suffered with you. And he rose again from the dead. If he did that, then he loves you. If he really did that, then he's powerful to help. So wait for the Lord in silence. Keep waiting. Keep filling your mind with scripture, with truth. Reminding yourself that he's not pushed you out of the garden. No. The way is open. I'm in his presence, even though I don't feel it. It's maybe worth remembering that feelings and emotions are sometimes not the most helpful of things, aren't they? I don't know if I've used this illustration before, um, but I think it's useful anyway. So let me remind you of it, if you've heard it before. Emotions are a little bit like the jet stream. If you know anything about, uh, about flying, you'll know there's this big, strong current of wind up in the atmosphere that moves around and, is, and flows very fast in one particular direction. If you're flying intercontinentally, you'll get up into the jet stream, and if it's going in your direction, you'll be flying along lovely. You'll reach your de- destination early. It'll be, it'll be great. Everything will be swimming. But if it's against you, you'll be struggling to make it there on time. If, you, if it's against you, it, everything will feel, at least for the pilot anyway, and for the engines and for your fuel consumption, everything will feel much harder if the wind is against you. And if it's across you, it's extremely dangerous. But pilots, when they fly intercontinentally, they don't just go and get washed along with a jet stream. They go to wherever they need to go. And so if that means with the jet stream, good. Against it, well, we'll just have to tough it out. Across it, well, maybe we'll try and deal with that somehow. But you see, emotions are like that. Sometimes they're with us and they blow us along and we can feel God's presence and it's amazing. Sometimes it's, they're against us and we experience what Job experienced and we have no idea what's going on and it feels like everything is against us, like God maybe isn't even there. But remember, that's, that might just be emotion. It might just be feelings that sweep you along. The truth is, he has made a way. The truth is, you are welcome as a child. If you come and receive him, you will be a child of God and you are welcome in his presence. But then what about sin? What if the reason that I'm feeling cold is that I've turned away from him? That I've stepped back out into that spiritual wilderness? That I've decided to go back to the way that I lived before? And perhaps that was a a complete accident or perhaps really I, I did want to do that. I think there's things that all of us have done this week or not done this week fit into that category. So when we sin and and we begin to feel cold, what's happening there? Has God pushed us out of his presence? Has he turned his back on us forever? No. No. And do you know how we know? Because Jesus on the cross, as people were sinning against him, as they were killing him, he forgave them. Before they'd even finished sinning against him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. Do you remember the thief on the cross? At the beginning, he was cursing. He was uh, mocking Jesus. But he noticed something in Jesus that made him change his mind. And he says to Jesus, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Do Do you know what Jesus said to him? Before he could do anything, before he could mend his ways, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So when we sin, it doesn't stop us from coming back to God. It doesn't re-fix the curtain. It doesn't replace the sword. It doesn't bolt the door to us. Perhaps we feel cold because we're 
turning our face away from God. Perhaps we feel far away because, because we're under his discipline, because he wants us to see that we've done wrong and to bring us back to good and light and beauty. But it's not that he's thrown us away. It's not that he's rescinded the paperwork of our adoption. It's not that, he, that he's thrown us back into the wilderness. So if you feel cold, if you feel like the smile of God is not upon you, it may not necessarily be because we've sinned. It might be because the jet stream of those emotions is just not going in the right direction today. So how long, O oh Lord? Wait for him. Come and pray. Gather others around you to remind you of truth. But if you have sinned, ask the Spirit to search your heart and to show you. And then confess it. And remember what I like to read almost every Sunday. If we say we're without sin, then we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if we've sinned and we're feeling like God's hand of discipline is, among, is, is upon us, don't try and fix it yourself. Jesus fixed sin for us at the cross. We didn't come into his presence by trying to be good, by just trying to feel bad. We won't stay in his presence by just trying to be good, by feeling bad. Come into his presence because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Come and know his welcome. Come and see him say, even in the moment, as we haven't even finished sinning yet, come and see him say, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. Did you know that's even in the moment of our sin? Jesus loves you. The Father welcomes you as his own child. So let's run away from it. If he loves us that much, even as we're sinning, how could we ever want to do that? Why would we ever want to turn our backs on a God like that? So if it's silent, keep coming close. And one day he will draw near to you. You'll feel what really is true. If you've been sinning, if you've turned away from him, well, turn back. He hasn't thrown you out of his presence. If you feel cold, it's perhaps discipline. But turn back and see his open arms saying, come on, welcome home. And in suffering, well, you could come along tonight for a fuller answer. But in suffering, remember the God who suffered with you. Remember that Jesus is the one who walked under that flaming sword so that we never have to. In suffering, it's not God punishing us. Suffering is something that we experience because we live between the covers of this book. Suffering is something, sometimes it's self-inflicted, but most of the time it's just sad and, and we don't know why it's happened. But God is still there. And not just in, in, you know, there because he's kind of everywhere, but God is there with us in suffering because he knows what it's like to suffer. He's the God who has scars. So how are you feeling today? Do you feel like God is silent? Well, don't let that push you away. Don't let that tempt you away. No, come close and stay close until you can say, he turned and heard my cry, until you see his face. Have you sinned? Well, don't let that push you away. Come close to him and be warm again. Are you suffering? Well, don't feel like God doesn't care or God doesn't notice. No, he knows and he suffers with you. He suffered for you. And one day he'll wipe every tear away. He'll right every wrong and fix every suffering. And we'll see him. We'll be with him. Not just living within us, but we'll see him face to face. Won't that be a wonderful day? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you've made it possible for us to come close to you. We thank you that you're a God who's present with us, not just transcendent and far away as if 
you were disinterested in us, not just blending into everything so that we can never really know you. But Lord, we thank you that you're personal and present. Thank you that you're close to us, even when we don't feel it. Lord, we thank you that it's true. Even when we don't feel it, we thank you it's true that you've opened a way for us to come back. Lord, that if we've trusted in you, if we've put our faith in Jesus' name, then we're your children. We belong to you. You've adopted us and brought us into your family, and that can never change. Lord, we thank you so much that even when it's silent, really you're still there. Even when we've sinned, your arms are open for us to return. And even in suffering, especially in suffering, you speak to us and draw us closer to yourself to make us more like Jesus day by day. Lord, help us to trust you this week. Help us to experience more of your presence. Help us to see more of your power at work that we might have great confidence and great joy as we look forward to the day when we get to see you finally face to face. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amforchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.